What a start for Brad Hughes. 180 metres to go. Looking good. Oh, what a shot. What a shot from Brad Hughes. Oh, my goodness. What a finish for Bradley Hughes. Easy number five, joining the lead. An amazing victory. For the second time, Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters. This time by five strokes. In this episode of Bradley Hughes Golf, we are joined by Executive Vice President of Two Edge Golf, John Craig. You may have all seen the Two Edge commercials, particularly relating to the many Champions Tour players that use the product. John gives us amazing insight into the nuances of getting the perfect club into the hands of the Tour player and discusses the many pitfalls a regular golfer falls into when selecting a set of clubs. I've known John for over 40 years from growing up and playing golf together in Melbourne, Australia, and this discussion is eye-opening to the minute detail necessary for a golfer to optimize their equipment in a way to promote better shots. So sit back, listen, and enjoy John Craig. This week on Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast, we've got the Executive Vice President of Tour Edge, John Craig, and this is an interesting Thing for me because I've known John for over 40 years and now here we are both in America. I'm playing golf, teaching golf, and John's still in the golf business with Tour Edge. Tell us a little bit about Tour Edge Golf, John. Most people probably recognize it more from the Champions Tour, but tell us the, the in-depth info about your company. Hey, Brad, nice to be here. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks, 40, mate. I, was, I was trying to work it out uh last night just thinking about this morning i think it's 43 years it could be <laughs> yeah yeah which is uh yeah it's a bit scary to think about let's move on uh to <laughs> golf so we are um we're the probably the last uh you know independent privately owned uh hardware company in the, the global hardware market i mean ping is still a privately held company but you know, uh, Tour Edge has been going for 34 years, uh, still owned by the same guy who founded the company here in Chicago. Uh, you know, it's a really cool American success story. Um, I started working with the company nearly 20 years ago down in Australia where I had a distribution business. So I was uh, Tour Edge's distributor down in Australia for about 13 or 14 years and sold that business. And the owner of Tour Edge asked me to move to the U.S. and and come and run the the global business. So I uh, arrived in Chicago January of 2017. And yeah, we make uh, a whole range of clubs from, uh, you know, introductory clubs, junior sets, package sets for beginners to get into the game through to sort of mid-level custom fit clubs. And then our, you know, a lot lot of your listeners will know us for our exotics brand of, you know, premium clubs as used by Scott McCarran and Bernard Langer and, uh, a whole bunch of players, including your good self, uh, who played one of our fairway woods many years ago on the PGA Tour, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a great little company, um, uh, and it's a it's a really good story of of uh, a smaller private American company, you know, still thriving in what's become a very global uh, and competitive business. So that's a little bit too rich. So, like we mentioned at the start, there we've known each other for a long time. In fact. I did my first, well, I was a young fella, but going to school, but during school holidays, I did my first job and it was with you at Ray Drummond Golf Shops way back in Melbourne there. we think I think it was the Dandenong one 
Dandenong store and I lived in Aspendale. You lived in Cheltenham at the time. So I had to, I couldn't get to Dandenong and I didn't have a license. So I used to catch the train every morning up to Cheltenham station. You'd zoom up with exhaust smoke coming out of your car and pick me up and off we'd go to to work. Can you remember back that far? Yeah, I, I can. In fact, I can remember you being the, the master of the vacuum cleaner. Uh, out there at Ray Drummond's in Dandenong. I mean, they were they were heady days of us as kids. At, you know, I think you were only 15 at the time. I think I might have been 18 or 19. Um, but like a lot of kids um, in Australia and around the rest of the world, we played golf and we we're all hoping to have a career in golf, uh, you know, playing or in some some manner or teaching. And, uh, you know, we started working in, in golf shops as a, a way of, you know, earning a bit of money while pursuing our passion. And so, yeah, I do remember those days fondly. In fact, I think it may have been our our dear old friend, Greg Ellery, who may have first introduced us. And, uh, and yeah, and then you then you got wise and you realised, geez, this retail, it doesn't pay enough. I'm, I'm going down to the wharfs where, it's, where <laughs> it pays a little bit better and the hours are a little bit more friendly to practice. So, uh, it was a short-lived career in golf retail, as I recall, Brad. Yeah, not a lot. Although I did actually, like you mentioned, Greg Ellery, I did, uh, after our stint at Ray Drummond, I actually went and worked with Greg for Pro Canex and Trevor Henley That's right. ran the yeah. Brosnan part. And I actually was their bum boy there as well. I used to vacuum there too and answer the phones. Well, I bet you haven't put those skills to uh, to practice for a while. <laughs> So, yeah, like we said, we've known each other for a long time. We, we started out playing uh, junior golf. In fact, the first junior interstate team that I played on, which is, I think it's under 21. I was 16 and you would have been like 19 or 20 at the time. And we went to Perth and uh, we played, represented our state there. We played at Bunbury and then we had the Australian Junior Championship in um, back in Perth in Cottesloe Golf Club. So we were reminiscing about this the other week. I don't remember much about the matches themselves. Um, I do remember playing Brad King in one of the matches, and Kingy was always funny because he he got on the first tee and he introduced himself and he said, I'm Brad King and I hit it too far. So I thought that was a little bit of a, a strange introduction and I managed to outdrive him on the second hole and he sort of wanted to try outdrive me the rest of the way. So there was some characters in the golf world back then but well, tell us tell us the story about us uh playing the australian junior at cottesloe you remember it better than i do i was a young fella 16 and something else happened later on that week that i can't recall the, the whole thing but i'm sure you have a better estimation of the events well yeah how how deep do we dive here the uh <laughs> Well, let's just say, Brad, that you were an exceptional player. And in fact, you were the end of my aspirations to uh, to play golf professionally because I think, as you rightly say, I think I might have been 20, you were 16. And as I've told friends, you were four years younger and four shots around better. Um, but anyway, the Australian junior at Cottesloe Golf Club, you're right. And I, I do believe I may have led through the first round, which was my only claim to fame. But uh, I do remember one B Hughes heading up the 18th uh, with the lead uh, only to full putt the final hole at Cottesloe to put himself in a playoff with, if you may remember, Jeff Wagner and Grant Waite. 
I actually ended up one back. Pazza was in the playoff. I ended up, uh, I've played with Craig Parry. He three-putted and I four-putted. So we can't, we don't have very fond memories of that green. It looked like they buried some elephants in it. I always thinking about that. You know, if I had a two-putted that hole, we might never have heard of Grant Wade or Craig Parry. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's true. Probably not. Pretty good good names going around back then. And um, I mean, for listeners in America, it's, it's, it's often fun to look back to to Australia and and how many world class players we've produced relative to the, you know, Australia's population being about one tenth of the US, and uh, we've definitely batted above our weight. That's that's for sure, and and something I think everybody involved in Australian golf is pretty proud of. And uh, you know, there's a nice crop of young players coming through today, um, particularly in the girls. Absolutely. So we played pennant together too. Pennant is a interclub match. We ended up playing. Uh, I moved to a higher level in, in the division and played for Kingswood towards the end of my amateur career, and we played there together. And we had a pretty successful team. We made the the final, and you were kind of the star in a couple of matches, taking out the the win on the nineteenth hole or something to win four three and. You had some exuberance back then, didn't you? You like to flaunt the fact that you hold a putt to win or something. It was it was good viewing. I had yeah. hopefully won my match four and three by then, so I could come and watch you play. You know, I did. I did love an eyeball. That's for sure. No, you know, uh, everyone gets lucky occasionally, and uh, yes, a couple of times I was able to, and, and it was fantastic because we played. Uh, match play pretty much all of the highest level amateur events down in Australia were principally maybe some stroke play for qualifying but uh, match play and then our equivalent of college golf which was you know intra-club at a high level was was all match play and you know just fantastic memories and fantastic times and that was a a very strong team at Kingswood with luminaries like Peter and Gary Sweeney Bradley Hughes, I think some veterans like Ken Kilburn and boy, some names that... Uh, John Munro. John Munro, yeah, go back a long time. Uh, Ellery, Mike Samuels, who was a very good player, but also then went on to have a uh, tremendous corporate career. And uh, yeah, it's amazing the people that flow through through your life in golf, that's for sure. And who would have thought it would end up with both of us living in the U.S.? I know it's crazy. I, I remember getting offered to go to college and uh, had a few offers, and I thought there's no way I can go to America for four years. I'd be frightened to death. Going, I can't go away from Australia for that long, and here I am, 28 years later, still, you know, I've lived here half my life now. So the things we do for golf. Yeah, you were a shocking mummy's boy, though. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you grow up, you travel, uh, you get, you know, it's amazing the opportunities that life presents you and. You know, I've been really lucky to uh, have, have had those opportunities presented and, and through various different circumstances, you know, take a few leaps of faith and, yeah, wouldn't wouldn't change anything for the world, that's for sure. So after I ruined your golf career because I could beat you at such a young age, what uh, tell us about your background in golf. I know you ended up doing really well in the retail, so give us a background of how that started and how it led you to where you are now at Tour Edge. So, obviously, when when you realise you're not good enough to play for a, a living, you've got to work out, well, bloody hell, what, what am I going to do? So, 
I continued on in retail in uh, a few different uh, iterations over the years. Um, not long after when we were young, those days we were talking about, uh, I left the golf industry and worked in a couple of different areas of retail in men's fashion for a little while. And uh, I worked in advertising for a little while, um, got back into the golf business. I was marketing manager, I think about age 25 or 26 at Drummond Golf again. Um, before then getting out of the, the golf industry and I spent 10 years in corporate consulting uh, in a consumer behavior consultancy in Melbourne, which gave me a whole new perspective uh, of the business world. And uh, as things turn out, an, an old colleague back from Drummond's uh, had gone and opened another business up in Queensland and came to me and, and said he was looking to merge a, a couple of national retail groups and wanted me to oversee that merger. And that resulted in me moving to Queensland, to the Gold Coast. Um, and that was the beginning then of my wholesale uh, career. And, and through that retail group, we had an importing arm Cutting a long story short, I didn't, by that stage, I was kind of a little over retail and I wasn't probably cut out to be a manager of a franchise business. So I split off and started running the importing and wholesale business. And, and during that 12 or 13 years, I was lucky enough to work with some fantastic companies from all around the world, from the Nicholas Company um, to represent McGregor, Kent Golf, uh, Tonic, uh, Volvic Golf Balls, Champ Spikes, a whole bunch of different stuff over OGO uh, apparel and golf bags. So I, I, my company kind of, for the, the companies who weren't large enough to have their own subsidiary office down in Australia, uh, worked through my uh, business as, as their importer and sales manager, if you like, down in Australia. And that's where I first met David Glod from Tour Edge and uh, built a fantastic relationship with him and uh, as fortune would have it, uh, and as I touched on earlier, I sold that business to the Walkinshaw Sport Group 2015, I think it was, and uh, I spent a year not really sure what I was going to do. I went back to college for a year and did my MBA, um, so that was a good way to fill the, the year in, and, and that's when the opportunity emerged. That day, you know, I'd always joke with David that one day I'd come to the US and give him a hand, and, and, sh and, and in my typical fashion, I think I did use the words, I'll, I'll tell him. I think I said to him that I'll, I'll show you how to run this properly. Um, and he rang me one day and, and said, are you serious? And my wife and I undenied for six months, but ultimately decided and have made the move. And it's just been tremendous. And, you know, it's it's been a blessing in, in many different respects. I've had the opportunity, you know, not long after coming to the US, Tour Edge invested in a, uh, um, the Champions Tour. Um, so for me, at, at my age, to meet my kind of, idols as I oversaw that program and was uh, responsible for signing the likes of Bernard Langer and Scott McCarran and Alex Checker and Tom Lehman um, to have got to know these people now and in fact become friends with them uh, has been a dream come true for a, for a kid from Melbourne and you know going back from vacuuming the floor at, at Drummer Golf 44 years ago it's it's uh, been a pretty cool story and I love it I go out on tour probably every, you know, four to six weeks to check on our players. Um, I still work technically with equipment with many of those guys, so I enjoy that immensely. Um, you know, guys like Langer are, are simply, you know, sometimes you, you look at the guy and <clears throat> it's just incredible to look at, at, at the complete professional that he is. And I, I've often spoken to people about, 
you know, I mentioned before, I spent 10 years in a corporate consulting career. And if you talk about professionals in their craft or their industry and whatever they do, and whether you're a business person or a CEO or a professional golfer, you know, I classed Langer as as good as I've ever seen as far as being a true professional by definition of the word. I mean, he takes everything so, uh, you know, the detail, the preparation, his partnership with Terry Holt, his caddy, the work that they do, his attitude, equipment, um, Langer, I'm happy to share. His contract with us is that he does not have a guaranteed club in the bag. So uh, he doesn't have to play any tour edge clubs in his contract. Um, so it's been fantastic for our company and it's pushed us to another level to continue to try and make equipment that's better than what he's currently using. And he currently plays, it's an interesting mix of, he plays a tour edge, four, five, six, seven iron, pitching wedge, he just put a new eight iron in the bag uh, last week. The week I was actually up at Century World, uh, fitting him with a new iron, uh, eight iron. Believe it or not, that we've had made especially. Langer is very unique in his irons that he requires twenty five percent offset in his irons. Uh, and it'd be interesting to hear your view on, on you know the reasons why and wherefore and, and why he feels offsets better because it's really a, a a technology that's gone very out of fashion in golf equipment yet. It really is probably the most efficient way of squaring the face up for some players. So, uh, you know, Langer's played driver a few times, but, you know, it's a challenge getting a driver to fit Bernard at his speed. He's right in between our, our if you like, tour model and our game improvement models. Uh, Langer's numbers, are, he, he swings at, at nine, you know, 98 and a half to 105, 100 and a half miles per hour. 150, 151 ball speed, almost without exception. I've never seen anybody of all the players I've worked with with such repetition in terms of smash factor, uh, in terms of being able to produce ball speed relevant to his club head speed. He just hits the middle with such regularity. It's quite incredible. He launches it at 13 and a half. It spins at 2,400. Um, you know, his numbers and all of his team, you know, part of being in partnership with Langer is that, you know, we have to know these numbers and our engineers work really hard to try and find something that goes a little bit better. So, you know, he's an incredible uh, an incredible example of getting, you know, 120% out of your natural ability. Um, but, you know, arguably you could say, well, mental preparation and toughness and professionalism is part of your natural ability. But we, we often don't consider it. We look at the athletic side alone as distinct from actually giving more credit to the mental side and the off course and the looking after your body and eating and, and all those things. So anyway, uh, you know, cutting a long story short, it's just been, you know, the thrill of a lifetime for me to get to, to uh, know and work with these guys. And as I, as I, I said earlier, you know, really now to call them friends. So based on that, you know, that is not very high swing speed. I know we get slower and everything. You even joked about me when we played few months ago that I, I was getting slow well I'm getting old too but so and I can swing it faster than Bernhard Langer so obviously one of those other models that you mentioned I would have more success with than him so how do you go about trying to get something that fits his swing speed I said you said he's right in between the the tour model and the game improvement model so what tweaks would you have to try and make to to get him in that driver long term. 
So it's really about centre of gravity position that it's it's such a finite, um, you know, I'll call it an art because while there's an engineering science, <clears throat> head by head, model by model, there isn't a perfect CG position. And, and the C centre of gravity position in a driver is instrumental to creating the launch angle and the spin. Everything is a trade-off. You know, you put more weight forward, it's going to launch a little bit lower. Weight lower, uh, it's going to spin a little bit less. Everything in a driver design especially is all just a constant set of trade-offs. So, uh, you know, my, my engineer, uh, my VP of engineering, Matt Neely, who's probably one of the better young engineers in the industry, you know, he's losing hair as fast as you are, um, you know, trying to find the secret, the exact formula. And, you know, right now we're about a half mile per hour ball speed behind his current gamer. And, you know, one of the one of the, the things with working with Bernhard is that he won't change equipment uh, for the sake of money or whatever it is. It's the fact that it's got to go better than what he's currently using. And to him, half a mile ball speed at his speed is about a yard and a half a carry, three or four yards of rollout. And he just won't give up that three or four yards, regardless of who's paying him what. And um, as I said, our contract with him, he doesn't have to play the driver. Um which some people, you know, remarked, oh, well, that's kind of a strange thing that you're paying him all this money. Well, you know, it's been great for us as a company because it's made us improve and, you know, continually strive to improve our equipment. And look, we're really close. We'll get there before he retires. I, I promise you that. <laughs> he might not retire the way he's going. No, no. And in fact, look, I don't mean to brag, but I told our tour rep, Jeff Opine, up at Century World on the Tuesday, I walked six holes with Langer. And I told Jeff that he was gonna he was gonna win if he putted. He's had a few problems with the putter recently, but if he putted half decent, that course was so strategic and so difficult for the senior guys. I mean, it played at seven thousand yards. The rough was long, and there was a ton of really intimidating water and a lot of really squirrely kind of mental shots that you could see Langer was going to be able to plot his way around. Distance was no advantage because you couldn't play the ball out of the rough. The, the greens had a lot of slope and were pretty hard and fast. So, you know, while you the, the rough wasn't completely immovable, you just had no control of your ball on the greens. So you know, I think Langer hit 80 plus, north of 80 plus of fairways. And, you know, he just plotted it plotted a way, a way around that course better than anybody else and hold a few parts and consequently won by two or three. And how long has he been using the irons? I, I remember playing a few practice rounds with him years ago when Pete Coleman was caddying for him. And I know he's caddy, Terry. He's a lovely guy. Um, you know, he used to have 25 clubs in the bag sometimes carrying around in practice rounds. And he had like a, a really mismatched set at one point. He had Hogan's and Adams and all types of different clubs. So you should be happy that he's got a majority of your clubs in there. You just need a nine iron now. No, that's true, and I have to remind our team in here of that context that, you know, Bernhard is unlike anybody else, and um, some things don't change. I mean, Terry, you know, who's 120 pounds ringing wet, has to run around in the shower to get wet, as they say. I mean, Terry lugs the staff band staff background in practice rounds with. Bernhard will always have 16 or 17 clubs. He'll always have a new fairway wood to test. I mean, he constantly is testing every manufacturer's equipment to see if there's something better out there. So, yeah, no, it's been a significant achievement to, 
to get what we have in the bag. Um, but they're all different models. His iron set, uh, he's playing a, a Tourage Exotics. It's a five-year-old model of CBX iron, which was an old forged iron we made that did have that uh, requisite level of uh, offset in it. But we also had to drill holes in the back of the sole and replace steel with tungsten to get some more weight down low for him in the four and five iron. Uh, so he plays four, five, six, seven iron in that model. He plays a pitching wedge in an offset blade that we made for him. And he just put a new eight iron in our Pro 723 forged iron set where we made a special offset eight iron for him. Uh, now we are making the rest of that set for him. And so hopefully Bernhard and Terry told me it's their goal before Bernhard retires for him to play a matching set of irons at least once in a professional tour around. But yeah, that's that's Langer and and that's you know that kind of the focus. I mean, his uh, current nine iron is an artisan forged. Uh, he's still playing old Apex Hogan Apex iron shafts, which are now virtually impossible to get. Um, I know so, a guy that's got some. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they never come out the same, and some are tipped differently, and so we've we've you know, work through every avenue possible over the last three or four years to to service him with those shafts. But he's finally found a shaft I think he can play with. So he's playing with a dynamic gold mid-115 uh, in his eight iron and pitching wedge and a couple of his wedges. So slowly but surely, I think he'll move to that shaft over the next um, year or two. I mean, he's Bernhard is so unique. He has a feel like, and Brad, you can probably relate to this a little bit, but I used to think this was a little bit of BS, you know, with just how finite a tour player can be with things like lie angles. But I remember in St. Louis last year, I was working with Bernhard on a nine iron and his start line was great, you know, but this nine iron just lent to the right a little bit consistently. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't a fade and it wasn't a push, but the ball flight just lent to the right a little bit. And after two or three shots, he just looked at me and said, John, I think the lie angle is not right. Sure enough, you go to the trailer and the lie angle is like a quarter of a degree flat. And he did it to me with that eight iron at Century World. Um, you know, he pulled uh, two or three during a practice session and said, I think we need to look at the lie angle, John, I think. Sure enough, it was half a degree uh, too upright. His feel is incredible. And, and he can turn around and say, John, that was a good swing. That should have gone straight. Um, so he's he's pretty amazing. Um, and at his age, at 65, uh, I don't know about you, but a, a quarter of a degree lie angle with my game nowadays <laughs> it makes no difference to me. But there you go. You don't need the middle of the face either, do you? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Very big irons nowadays. <laughs> But yeah, so let's talk I, about the offset thing. You know, I'm not, I've never been a big offset guy, and it's probably due to my golf swing that I can release the club with a little bit of forward lean and everything. But in my opinion, offset, which would mean the shaft is ahead of the sole, correct, or the leading edge, that's correct. kind of a game improvement thing. Yeah, and um, puzzle is like 14 millimeters uh, across, so it translates to that. A little over half an inch and bernard has to have the leading edge a quarter of that so that's about three i think it's 3.2 uh 3.3 millimeters is his ideal he wants to see the leading edge behind the leading edge of the hosel 
Cool. So what, you know, most hackers or poor golfers when the game improvement irons come out, and I'll use ping as an example, where they did have the, you know, the offset in the, the club. And I'm in my opinion, it's it's an assistance for the the poor golfer to probably try and hit down on the ball a bit more that you want to put the hands forward and get the shaft forward rather than the flick the club head pass. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, boy, if you if you go back to the history of golf clubs, I mean, some of the biggest selling irons uh, in history have been offset. Some of the, I mean, up until, say, 10 or 15 years ago, all wedges, uh, if you go to the great Wilson wedges of the past, forged wedges, you know, all carried a significant amount of offset. Um, in fact, we're launching in October a, a new range of, of wedges that Bernhard's designed with a significant amount of offset because you can't buy one. Right now, if you go to the market, it's virtually impossible to find an offset wedge. And, and Bernhard will stand and tell you that, look, it's a significant advantage. It helps set the hands a little bit more forward. It promotes uh, a more downward strike for most amateur players. He's played with, you know, 40 years of pro-ams are trying to lift wet lofted wedges. Uh, it helps promote that downward strike. And he said it also presents the bounce uh, in a little bit better angle than, uh, again, which is also a consequence of getting your hands a little bit more forward and actually creating a downward strike works with the bounce. So there's, an, uh, you know, one's a corollary or the other. But uh, he's absolutely adamant that, Tour players should all be using offset wedges. He said there's no disadvantage and there's only advantage. And for the average player, he says they're leaving strokes on the table trying to play with a 58 or a 60-degree lob wedge with almost nowadays, if you look at the the most popular wedges, they almost have face progression. So that's kind of an interesting to hear him. But, you know, his action is very – his face to – club head to path is very neutral. So he's not inside, he's not outside, he's pretty much straight up and down. And uh, he's just, the offset works for him. I mean, you'd be able to analyse his action better than me, but he can't literally, we, you know, we've tested with him with non-offset irons and he just can't make regular consistent contact like he can with the offset. I don't really know why, but I'm going to say maybe because it's his strong grip. Like he, he's always had a pretty strong left-hand grip that he needs to push that left hand forward a little bit to get the face square and that helps him, yeah. Mm. But as a as a question that, why do you think a lot of companies have gone to taking that out of the clubs, the offset? You know, that is a fantastic question that we regularly talk about here. And, you know, I think fashion, um, every golf equipment company is now making incredible equipment. Um for golfers out there, I mean, we really are just spoiled with the quality of equipment that's available across the industry now. I mean, every company is making great equipment from, you know, metal woods right through to irons. I mean, the choices, sometimes I don't know how a consumer decides um, because everything is so good that, you know, marketing becomes a really big thing. You know, are you a Callaway guy? Are you a tailor-made guy? Are you a, you know, slightly more unique ping guy? Uh, are you looking for a little bit more value tour edge guy? Um, I think marketing and fashion has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, in our hot launch line, which is really our our mid-level 
you know, we still make offset woods, which our our largest selling item, because nothing will help square the face for the average player who he's had a hundred lessons. He's still coming over the top a little bit. He can't make it work, and the, the offset just helps produce a squarer strike for him, which you know he can play a little bit more loft. You know, the better strike creates more distance, not the actual club itself. It's just the fact that he's creating a square strike, which is producing a little uh, more ball speed for him. So, you know, I think it's fashion more than anything else because, you know, I defy anybody to go to the, the range with the right consumer and, and you'll get better outcomes, uh, you know, by having that little the club face set back a little bit behind the, the, the hosel. Do you think something's changed now that, um, you know, early on when this onslaught of all new equipment came out, that a lot of it was done by the technicians in the labs or the the testing people and the golfers, or let's, let's call them the pros, didn't have as much say in it. They were sort of told to play this club because of the way it performs. And then maybe in the last so many years, the players have more feedback and that's kind of the look that they want. So now they're sort of making more of a a club design for the player rather than designing a club for that player to use. Would you agree with that or not? Yeah, Brad, look, I think that's a really, really significant factor. And to emphasise that, take it one step further, is that the majority of people who work in retail golf stores are also pretty good players. So they have an eye for what they like to look at. And the best example I can give you of this is that um, we have many uh, customers uh, around the world and uh, the growth of our business in recent times means we've brought on a lot more new international customers. So every time one of these customers comes on board and they look at our hot launch line, they look at the offset product and I'm not sure whether we can sell this. Hey guys, this is seventy percent of the volume in this line. No, it won't be in our market. Our market's different. Sure enough, two years later, after they've got the ordering the wrong way around, they'll come back and say, "Gee, you're you're right. This stuff really sells because it performs for the customer." But it took a long time for us to educate our retail partners to actually present this product for the right type of of customer. And so, not only uh, better players i.e. two are having a stronger influence on the look and shape of equipment. But as an OEM company, you know, we are at the hands of retail salespeople, invariably, who are better players. And if they don't like the look of a club, they tend to present it less often as a solution right. to their customers. So there's no doubt that that fashionability, uh, you know, versus a fitness for purpose, you know, most guys and gals out there can't break 90. Yeah, we kind of, you know, are building equipment for them for, you know, tour players and, you know, players that shoot 65 to 80. Uh, the industry is a little bit back to front with, with that sort of stuff. And the vast majority of equipment is played by these guys and gals that can't break 90. But, you know, they'll stand up there with the latest model tour driver and, and wonder why they cut the ears off it or whatever the case might be. And that's probably because of not so much the equipment marketing, but people want to play what John Rahm plays or what Mike Weir plays or, you know, they, they don't care whether it helps them or not. They just think, well, this is the best club because he's the best player type thing. 
So it, it is a, and I always find that fascinating, like just touching on what I mentioned before in that there was a point in time where the equipment was designed by good players. Like Hogan did his own equipment line. He would throw clubs out if they didn't look good or didn't perform. Yeah. Um, Tony Pina was a decent player and he yeah. designed clubs. David Graham designed clubs. So I thought it was Tom Crump. back in the day. There's some beautiful looking clubs probably because they look good to my eye, but they were designed by by good players. Yeah, there's, there's absolutely no doubt. I mean, there's a vanity involved, and I, I think the point you also made is that guys want to play what Dustin Johnson plays or Cam Smith or Brooks Kepka or John Rahm versus, well, what actually is the right club that will help them enjoy their golf? And it's not like we're going to be able to turn a, a 30 marker into a tour plan. But we can help, you know, guys and gals that have trouble, you know, the largest selling line in our company is our, you know, our ironwood sets, which is a, a hollow iron, ideally suited to seniors and ladies with slower swing speeds because you can hit shots with them that you just can't hit with a conventional iron. Um, you know, I, I've often joked over the years to say, look, if we didn't have egos, we'd all be using this because of the combination of forgiveness a whole bunch of factors, but they don't look like what we should be playing with. Right. But, you know, what's more important, your ego or actually being able to enjoy that, you know? And, you know, I watch gals, you know, they've got a 130-yard carry. And with a conventional iron, they they just can't carry it. But, you know, with the right equipment, they can. I mean, we've seen hybrids, you know, have some great success uh, in helping the average player, you know, play better and, you know, a lot of girls are playing. Look at the LPGA tour. There's girls there with eight head covers in the back. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah. really people have to, um, like you said, put aside the ego. They've got to really use what works best. And then, you know, at some point maybe their swing gets better and then they can use a different type of club. But I remember doing a lesson with a guy um many years ago and he was not a good player he was a beginner and he would shoot 125 and uh but he was getting the bug and wanted to get better but he had a set of clubs and I put him down I put my eight iron next to his and I said like I'm not trying to be rude here but your eight iron says you're shit and my eight iron says damn you're a good player I said "Uh, you don't need to I said, your club is not really helping you here. It was like six degrees upright and it looked like a, a shovel. It was obviously just a hand-me-down from someone. Mm. And when he asked me when to get new clubs, I said, look, I don't care what you get. Just go test some. But basically, here's, here's what you need to do as far as lie angle or or whatever. And I think he went with a set of Diablos, which was still decent, you know, offset, yep, yep. Uh, cavity back type thing. Still gave him some chance, but I set him up in the in a better lie angle, not so much because he needed it, but he needed it to change his swing because he was so over the top with his old clubs trying to stand the sole up. And, um, you know, he went and shot like 86 within three weeks just from having better equipment. So I didn't put him in blades. I didn't, I just said, look, pick what you want, but that's a good choice. And so equipment, you know, I always say to people, you know, you are what you eat, and equipment's kind of how you swing. If you can get the setup correct of your equipment, you can change your swing. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And and, and look, 
I think the, the, the issue, and it's just like teaching, right? You know, that guy is never going to be a tour player, but he can get better. But you've just got to be realistic in, in what your goals are, where your ability can reasonably get you, and then find the equipment that will cover from where you are today to where you want to get to, which might not be a set of forged blades. Um, and, you know, fitting has been fantastic for the industry, but for the average player, some of the extreme fits that I see, like, for example, your guy who's coming over the top, so some fitters have, you know, seen that, and so they've said, well, we'll make this really upright. But, you know, is that really the right thing to do? You know, it's got to be a combination of technique and equipment working synergistically rather than, okay, I'm going to give you equipment that works with your crappy technique or I'm going to give you tour equipment hoping that you can improve your technique. Like it's it's a, you know, the, the great fitters, I think, uh, pro, uh, provide a really nice match between the reality of the two. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, that set of Diablo would be perfect for the guy that you're talking about, you know, an offset cavity iron. It's going to give him some help. Um, but, you know, it's not this crazy shovel that's so upright, you know. Uh, you know, I don't think that type of fitting really does anybody a great, great service. Yeah, I always thought, you know, if you are going to get clubs and you are have a certain swing style, whatever, you know, and you need to improve it, then I think you're better off getting clubs to suit how you want to swing and not how you swing on the day. That's kind of what I was getting at because they, a lot of fitters do just, oh, you know, he's coming out. And I got the phone call from those people because I, I told him to have one degree flat or was at least standard and they were trying to call me straight away and said, no, he needs like four or five up. I said, no, he doesn't because <laughs> that's his crap swing. We want to get him to swing and better. So do you educate fitters on that type of thing or do you do you think that's just a trend? Look, we try. We, 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 we do our best. We work with fantastic partners like PGA Tour Superstores who by and large have a fantastic team of, of guys and gals there fitting that, that I don't think that's where you're going to get some of those extreme fits. I mean, there's, you know, there, there's a string. <clears throat> you know, again, it might be fashionable, but... I mean, that six-degree upright seven-iron is forcing the guy to present the club in a ridiculous position to get any sort of outcome. So, you know, is it cart, is it horse? Um, but you're exactly right. But I, I, I really think it's it's like having someone that comes to you for a lesson that kind of doesn't have a plan. I mean, I'm sure all of your best outcomes are where someone, and, and you know, remember, golf is not, you know, we're teaching often not professional golfers. Golf's a hobby. You know, people are lucky to get out once a week to hit balls. But if they have some sense of a plan and where they want to go with their golf, and that where they want to go might be that currently uh, I'm a midweek lady and I play off 35, I'd love to get to 25. Or I'd even, my dream world would be get to 18, a shot a hole. Well, great. Well, let's create that plan. Let's put in a teaching program for that plan. And over the next 12 months, if we commit to it, we should be able to get there. But it's not going to happen overnight. Um, it's not going to happen without equipment that won't at least be in that general ballpark of that improvement. Um, and it won't happen if you don't practice and put some effort into it. All right. I like how you said that it's a 12-month plan. You know, 12 months sounds an eternity to a lot of people, but Tiger Woods took two years to change his swing. And, and people forget that. They think, 
buy a new club or having one lesson is going to make them you know, instantly better. It's not always the case. They might see few results, but you have to do a lot of work and that's where your expectations arise. Like you said, 35 to 25, that's probably realistic handicap. 35 to 10, if you're only going to play once a week, is not realistic. Yeah. But anyone can change if they if they do the work. And, you know, golfers do change a lot. You know, I have people that sometimes do lessons and I'll ask them, you know, what's happened since last lesson? What have you seen good? What have you seen bad? I go, well, um, you know, I was watching YouTube and I saw this and I said, hang on, what are you talking about? Like, that's not our plan. We had a plan. Why, why would you divert from it? You're not going to put Band-Aids on your swing and get better all the time. You've got to stick to a plan to ultimately get the result. And it, it may take a month, it may take four months, but you can't just divert away all the time. Hey, golfers are the ultimate optimists looking for the immediate fix. Um, and that's a great part of the game, but it's also, you know, the exception of the rule. You know, the rule is, I mean, I think question number one, a great teacher should, should always ask is, look, how much time do you realistically have to commit to whatever it is that we're going to do? And then the teaching plan almost needs to be built to, you know, if they can only practice once a month, like you're going to have to keep it super simple because, by next session, they're going to have forgotten. They won't have any muscle memory, any retention. So, you know, the, the two, everything's got to work in hand in hand with realistic expectations. And and maybe that's a, a lesson in life as well. It's, it's not just related to golf and teaching equipment. It's, you know, kind of having a plan and being realistic about it. How much time can I put into this? Uh, if someone comes to you, I'm sure, and says, listen, Brad, I, I can grind for an hour three times a week and I'm committed to doing that for the next six months. Well, you can put in a far more aggressive teaching plan to that guy or gal than you can to someone say, listen, I, I play once a week. It balls on the range for an hour prior, uh, but I want to get a little bit better. Well, that's going to be a very different teaching plan to, to the prior example, or in my view anyway. I hope you're enjoying this podcast episode. Bradley Hughes Golf offers you countless ways to become better at this infuriating game. Go to bradleyhughesgolf.com to see all my lesson options for online or in-person instruction. If visual help is more your style, then you should sign up for my members site, bradleyhughesgolf-members.com. With over 500 videos and articles already on display, the members site is the most interesting and most informative platform on the internet for all things golf. My three eBooks, The Great Ball Strikers, The 430 Path to Great Golf, and Ben Hogan, The Secrets to His Success, have all received five-star ratings and are the most insightful reading material you can utilize while on your path to improvement. See bradleyhughesgolf.com and look under the eBooks category under the Lessons tab. Bradley Hughes Golf, where experience counts. Now let's get back to the interview. So we talked about Langer a little bit, run through a few of the other names and maybe just one little uh, tidbit about them. You know, maybe someone that's changed over recently to the Tour Edge, how you've gone about getting them in the clubs and what they like about them the most. Um, I talked earlier that, that, that fitting and centre of gravity is a very... Uh, you know, it's as much an art as a science. So Scott McCarron's a great example. Um, ripping guy who I've got to know very well. So Scott was our first staff player. 
Uh, he signed on to play a hybrid of all clubs about five <clears> years ago, um, but now plays all our medal awards. But he didn't play a driver for his first two years, first three years, I should say. Um, every time we would test, we would be a couple of miles for our ball speed slower than his gamer at the time. And we couldn't figure it out. Logically, there wasn't uh, any compelling reason why that was the case. And then in two years ago, uh, sorry, when our 721 driver came out, uh, sorry, 722 driver came out at the beginning of 22. Um, I was over in Hawaii for the first event of the year. Uh, Scott's always up for testing. Hey, Scott, got a new driver for you. Fitted it with his shaft, stood up, first hit, two mile per hour faster. So just instantly, straight out, first hit was better. Now, interestingly, that driver, through a whole variety of different reasons I won't bore everyone with, its centre of gravity was moved two millimetres more to the heel than the previous model and previous models because we changed a composition and we had a, a rail down the middle that, that required that to happen for it to work. Now, Scott, as you would know pretty well, pretty steep, comes over the top of it just a little bit. His impact position is ever so slightly heel side of centre. So that two millimetre movement of the centre of gravity or the sweet spot right behind his impact position created that extra speed. And Scott hasn't been out of the driver since and is consistently, you know, top three or four in distance on the PGA Tour champions. You know, Scott's numbers, as I recall, he's about 115 uh, club head speed, can get it nearly to 170 mile per hour ball speed uh, when he's fit and healthy. Uh, you know, carries a 285, gets it out there about 310. I mean, they're fantastic numbers for a, a guy in his mid, uh, just past his mid 50s. So, I think he had robust a day that we played quite often. Uh, yes, he he had. <laughs> <laughs> he would have had me from the ladies' tees, but um, uh, yeah, no, he he still hits it great, and um, he's had a terrible run with injury, and we love Scotty, and uh, he's back healthy now, but is still wrestling with a few issues of, of coming back from where he was. And, yeah, we can't wait to see him playing good again soon. Uh, but he's very unique. Mike Weir is very unique, terrific guy, left-hander, which in itself presented some challenges for Tour Edge because we didn't make a lot of product in left Yeah, I was going to ask that. My, you know, how do, do you, people have an eye for left-handed clubs or you just flip the right-handed one over and make it the same? In theory, yes, but... Um, Left hand's hard because you you can do exactly what you said, just simply take CAD, flip it around, make the club, but you set them down and a, a right and a left-hander will look at them and see them differently. Uh, it's really hard for a righty to look at a lefty and a lefty to look at a righty. Um, we did a special set of forged irons for Mike in left hand. We made a decision to, to get more into the left-hand market. Uh, we have a strong business up in Canada, so Mike was a natural fit for us. Um, so he plays the new Pro 723 forged irons. But ironically, the left-handed set has a little bit more offset than the right-handed set. The right-handed set only has, like, basically, I think it's a millimetre. Uh, so, like, um, something like 4 or 5%. The, the lefties have a bit more, and Mike loves that. Um, so Mike's been a great guy to work with. Also very demanding, very talented player, uh, but lovely guy. Um I mean, all the guys on the Champions Tour, I tell you, it's so different to the main tour where I guess when you're the, the main tour is so, you know, cutthroat and it's so competitive. 
And, you know, most of the guys out on the Champions Tour, while they grind and they work hard and it's still super competitive, it just doesn't have that cutthroat. You know, these guys have, you know, for the most part made their dough. They're all pretty comfortable in life. And then they kind of know themselves a little bit better at 50 than maybe what they did at 28. So it's a really different culture out there. So it's great to work with the players. Um, Tom Lehman was an interesting guy to work with, with a slightly different technique. So that presented a whole different set of challenges. Um, Alex Checker is a great character. Alex joined us last year. Um, TOG, as he's effectively known, the other German, because uh, he definitely lives in Bernhard Shadow a little bit out there. But Alex is a great player in his own right. Um, works a lot with the long drive guys, plays a really unique shaft from a company called the House of Forged, uh, plays that in his metal woods, um, uh, uh, plays driver, fairway, uh, and the hybrid with us. Here's an interesting one with so our forged irons have a very neutral bounce and uh, have been really successful with our staff players, except for McCarran and Checker which, Brad, you'd notice that both Alex and Scott, particularly from, say, 8-iron down, really get steep and into the ground. Uh, and so they need a little bit more bounce in their short irons. So you have subtleties like that. You know, do you make then another model that's got slightly more bounce? So now, explain that for the listeners, why they need, from a steeper angle, why you need more bounce. Okay, so as the club head is coming into the ball, uh, you have a sharp angle on the leading edge. The steeper that angle is as it comes in with a sharp leading edge and what we call no bounce. So sitting behind the leading edge, the angle of the sole is more consistent with the angle coming in. The club will tend to dig if they hit it just ever so slightly behind the ball. And even great players are not always flushing every shot. You know, some are ever so slightly thin, some are a little behind. Now, uh, a digger or someone with a very steep angle attack. So, you know, McCarran is a perfect example. Uh, Checker is also who goes so hard at it into the ground. You know, really powerful guys with typically really strong leg actions. So what they like to play in their irons is an iron where the angle on the bottom of the sole is actually opposite to the direction they're going, which creates a little bit of a, a buffer or a backstop. But when they're coming in, there's a little bit more metal on the sole, which helps slide more horizontally rather than digging in vertically. So, you know, with, with that sharp angle, it's just the club hits the ground and wants to dig. With a little bit more bounce on the sole, it's like it, it tends to bounce through the turf and get more horizontal than digging straight in. So, so you know, that to me, that kind of explains some of the clubs that are made that have the really wide sole and that for the... For the person that just swings very steep and straight down on the ball, they they need those big fat soles to, otherwise they're just going to chop the ball ten yards in front of them all the way down the fairway. Exactly. I mean, it's a huge performance benefit to have that great big rudder, if you like, both a vertical and horizontal. The wing keel. The wing keel uh, for people that don't make consistent contact. So we talked earlier about you know guys and gals, senior guys. Um, you know, having that big flat sole really helps if you're a little bit slower and you don't have as much strength because, of course, you know, slower, lacking strength, you only have to hit a little bit behind the ball and it's just nothing happens. Like it just digs and stops. You know, a better player can have the strength sometimes to muscle a slight fat shot through 
and probably get 95% out of the performance of the shot. Whereas someone without that strength, you know, that drops to 60%, like the ball goes nowhere. So that big fat sole will tend to bounce more. So, you know, you can flub them a little bit more. You can thin them a little bit more because it also helps in the opposite direction when you thin the ball a little bit by having all that extra weight, which is a byproduct of that big sole. You have far more weight down below the ball, which will help get the ball in the air a little bit more. So, yeah, no, good point. Well picked up. It, it applies to the uh, average player even more so, but it definitely has a performance aspect for tool players as well. So that was kind of the theory behind the Hogan shore out sand iron. Remember that that had the big wide flange? Oh, there's still a bunch of them on the market. Today. Yeah, so Hogan apparently designed that because he'd sit at lunch up at Shady Oaks up in the clubhouse and watch all these guys scull their bunker shots across the green and everything on the 18th hole. And he made, apparently, story goes, he made this wedge and gave everyone in the club one of them so they could actually get out of a bunker. He was sick of watching them chop it around on the 18th green while he was having lunch. I mean, Bradley, you are an excellent teacher, but I wouldn't need to remind you of how many lessons have you done in the bunker with people that just are not going to get the technique and they need that help of that big bounce on the bottom of the sole because, you know, they just can't work their hands under um, and they're never going to be able to. My uncle was was famous back when I was a kid at Victoria Golf Club where we played and, you know, really hard sand. And my my dear uncle, who's no longer with us, John Lay, just couldn't. I must have given him a hundred lessons trying to, you know, teach him to work the right hand under, and he just couldn't get it. So, uh, you know, sometimes technology can help with those people. And and those, if if no one's ever tried them, those big badass wedges uh, really make a difference out of the traps. Uh, again, particularly for you know ladies and seniors who don't quite have the strength. Uh, you know, it's easier for them just to, you know, you're almost just banging the club in behind the ball and letting the club do all the work. Whereas do that with a Vokey or a Cleveland wedge or a Exotics wedge and it's just going to dig and nothing will happen. All right. So with the, I don't know all about it yet, but, you know, with, there's always been this discussion with the RNA, USGA, whatever, um, about slowing things down or setting a little bit of a different standard so we don't make every course obsolete because that's kind of what's the precedent has made it look like. What, uh, as far as you know, what limitations are coming? Do you think there's anything or do you think companies can still advance their technology a little bit to still help players? Um, so I'm going to give you a personal view and not necessarily a, a view of the company because I'm not, in, you know, being brutally honest, I'm not sure whether Tour Edge is really fully uh, got its head around this, but but personally, I, I think Mike Wan is absolutely committed to the long term, a long term vision for the game and 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 how he thinks golf needs to be played into the well, he and his team. So I think change is definitely coming. I think change is a really good thing for our industry. So I'm swimming against the tide of popular opinion from the OEMs who are all fighting like crazy. No, don't change the ball. Don't change clubs. It doesn't matter. We're going to engineer to whatever rules the USGA ultimately provide. And we're currently already up engineering against the limit, right? So from a COR or CT perspective, from a club head size. So we're all engineering up against a ceiling already. 
if you lower that ceiling, we're doing the same thing. We're all just engineering, trying to find an edge up against that ceiling. Nothing is going to change uh, from an injury perspective. And arguably, we're already bifurcating equipment anyway. I mean, look at PGA Tour Superstores and then the shelf there. You'll have a row of, of uh, forged blades and forged cavity, you know, for really good players. So they're making the, the clubs already for that player. Great big fat sole, cavity back irons. Tour Edge in its exotic C-series and E-series, we're making a range for the average player and also for tour players. You know, what's that different to what we're doing now? Right. And I think that golf cannot continue, and I think it's great. The, the guys are better athletes that, that are coming out nowadays. They're bigger, stronger, faster. But, you know, golf is one of the only games in the world where, you know, architecture is an issue. I don't know whether you caught any of the. We're recording this on Monday right after the US Open, the ladies. It was fantastic to see them go into holes like eight with, you know, five iron for the longer girls and hybrids versus, you know, the tour players are now going in nine and wedge and it's just not the challenge that it was designed to be. And so I'm a great, you know, call me old or old school. You know, I'd love to see the ball come back 30 yards. So we, we grew up, you probably remember this, I certainly do. We grew up in a bifurcation of the golf ball. We went through Australia, it. Australia, we used to use the small ball and then we were made to use the big ball. No one quit. No one stopped playing. I didn't even notice a difference. It's just a more of a scare factor than a reality, isn't it? You're exactly right. And I was going to raise that point. And, you know, the sky didn't fall in. In fact, it became fun um, because for, I think, three years or four years, I can't remember which, you were able to play either ball. Now, the balls performed. Um, you're a unique ball striker, right? Nothing mattered to you because everything came out of the middle and went dead straight. For, for us mere mortals, I mean, the big ball into the wind, particularly on a mishit, was 20 or 30 yards shorter. Um, and, and so that became uh, a great challenge to deal with, but chipping and putting became way easier with the big ball versus the small ball. It spun a lot more around the greens. Bunker shots, you know, tight lies down in Australia with the big ball, you know, <laughs> Next time you find a, a small ball somewhere, go and drop it on a really tight lie. Right. <laughs> and picture in your mind, you think, how the freaking hell did I ever used to be able to hit this? I mean, right, it's like 0.06 of an inch, but it looks like it's a, a marble compared to a medicine ball. That's right. We went from 1.62 inches, 1.62 ounces to 1.68. So 0.06 of an inch, but yeah, look, you know, a a baseball or a basketball is incredible. Um, I mean, on that story in professional golf. So I caddied in the 81 Australian Open at Victoria Golf Club for an American. I think his name was Robert Raymond. So we get to the 16th at Victoria in the second round. He's got to go par, par, par to make the cut. So long par three, two par five. So just keep your head on him and we'll be fine. So we get to 16 at Vic, which is 178 metre. So 198 yard or thereabout, par three, slightly uphill, and it's blowing 20 miles an hour from the southwest. And he didn't think he could get his three iron there. So he ummed and ahed. We played big ball the whole, the whole way around. Goes to the bag, pulls out a brand new Dunlop 65. <laughs> 
stands up with three iron and absolutely flushes this thing. Flushes this three iron right at the flag. Best looking shot you've ever seen. Freaking lands on the back edge and ends up down on the 17th team. Uh, we did not make the cut. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that was, and that is God's honest truth. Um, but that was part of the fun of, you know, big ball, small ball. Uh, there's lots of new perspectives. I mean, new equipment, new rules if we bifurcate, you know, weekends where you play the big ball, weekends where you play the old longer ball. I mean, I'm a huge believer that, that we, we need to be reining back the tour player and giving more help. I'd like to see the rules relaxed a little bit for the average player. Correct. Like well, they the, already play a different game. The pros play a totally different game, the amateurs, so why try and keep it the same? I, I, I like the theory. The Japanese market has been doing this for 20 years, making non-conforming COR drivers so guys can hit at 250 yards. Well, who cares? They're not playing. They're not going to win a US amateur. They're right. and balls on a driving range having fun. So, you know, I'd like to see rules relaxed on the one hand and tightened on the other because it's just a different game we've seen it happen in tennis the tennis ball was going too fast it was ruining the game it was turning into a serve and volley you know a two three hit ridiculous so they slowed the ball down i, I think they not... did something like that with baseball too i think they slowed the baseball down a bit too no what they did scruff was they uh, banned the aluminium bat because the cor on that bat was coming so off too quick yeah. And then what you could do, I'm told here, is that you'd send the bat off to a place that would play the bat in and it would get faster and faster. So they banned those and they banned them because you can't make uh, Fenway Park any bigger. You can't make Wrigley. You know, how do you expand Wrigley? And they were hitting it over the fence just too easily. What's the difference with golf? They did it in baseball and no one for a second thought that the game was. Uh, I'm not going to baseball anymore because, you know, I don't see him hit at 50 feet or 100 feet over the fence anymore. Yeah. You know, I hear these people argue, well, you know, I love, you know, seeing the big ball. I will love watching DeChambeau hit driver. Well, let me tell you, if Bryson hit it 40 yards shorter, it's still a feat to stand and watch him hit driver. No one would know. I, I watched him on the range at Augusta yeah. a few years ago and he hit the ball so high it came off so hard. I looked at it and I went, that's impressive. I don't know whether that's going 400 yards or 280 yards. I can't tell. You are so right. I stood on the range uh, three years ago, I think, when the tour last came to Chicago at Medina. And I, uh, lucky enough, was uh, had a range pass. And Brooks and Rory were hitting drivers side by side. And watching them hit driver, I mean, they just launched the ball into a window that, for us guys, it's just I'm looking in the wrong place for the ball when it comes off the club. And I, I could not tell whether that's going 300, 325, because it's simply just so far out there and so high. So you're spot on. No one would notice, but we would see mid-irons and more skill tested back in the game. And we wouldn't have to play this crazy rough and... You know, I'm sure you have the same uh, view that I do that, uh, you know, we play too much rough in America, too much soft ground. Part of that's unavoidable because we have, you know, a, uh, you know, a climate that's very different. But from where we grew up, 
I'm sure anyone who's listening who watched the President's Cup from down at Royal Melbourne just watched a different game, just like, well, watch a different game with the Open next week. But there's no doubt the game is more exciting when the ball's on the ground and you're not exactly sure it's what it's going to do. And and golf was never invented to be a fair game. Right. You know, people talk about wanting to, you know, get free relief from divots. Well, guys, get over yourself. I mean, right. that would be like saying, oh, does that mean we get a mulligan when we get a bad bounce? Right. Right? Yeah, when does it end? Where does it end? Play the ball as it lies, you know, take your good breaks with your bad breaks. For 200 years, skill has prevailed. They say now, everything evens out over time, but maybe not for you and me. We've, we've always got more bad than good breaks, surely. <laughs> oh, speak for yourself. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm my not- other... I like where you're heading with this because my other thought was, you know, we have 14 clubs and a real test of being a golfer is being able to hit all 14 clubs. But the pros rarely do it. They, they, you know, they could play with a half set, a lot of them now. Not everyone, but a lot of them could, you know, there was a factor a few years ago, Dustin Johnson hit a six iron for a second shot on a par five once, a uh, par four, sorry once throughout the whole year. So basically he played every par four that year with less than six iron approach shots. Yeah, no, it's it's and, and these par threes at 270 yards. Like well, why did they play that par three in the the open recently at LA Country Club? 280 yeah. yards? Yeah, 280. I mean it, it's just kind of it's 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 I don't know. It's a different game. Is it a better game? I'll argue it's not. Uh, you know, I'll argue that you know some of the great par threes around the world at 160 yards, uh, 180 yards. That you know, and, and let's face it, we just can't afford all this property, and we can't afford all this water. So go out 30 or 40 years, and and we have to change it because it's not a sustainable product moving forward. So, you know, why do you think some people don't see that? Why do you think people was they're so enraptured by the long ball and, oh, well, he's an athlete and 350 yards drives and whatever. Why, why don't they see the future that you just can't continue? I, I've always held the opinion, and Mike Clayton sort of put me onto this, that the longest of any era becomes the norm 10 yep. years later or something like that. A generation. The next generation average will be the longest, you know, as Norman was. I mean, Norman now would be below average. Right. Um, I mean, bigger, stronger, faster. The Olympics—it's—it's it's just inherent in our nature and DNA. Uh, the people want to see basketballers jump higher, athletes run faster. Uh, it's just an expectation. But golf is a sport with so much more minutiae and different skills, and the fact it can be played from cradle to grave—you know—we shouldn't fall. And you know, it's a little woke to some degree that you know. You can't rain going, well, you know, it was designed within a fixed arena. If you change and make those arenas irrelevant, what do you do? You just throw 200 years of history and you go and build new arenas. Well, that's an option, but can we afford to do that? Is that a sustainable in 200 years again? Do we do the same thing? So whatever the equivalent of Medina or Marion, um, you know, we keep after recreating them every hundred years. I mean, that just doesn't seem to make any sense. Rather than let's play with a set of equipment that 
leaves the great ballparks of the world completely relevant to, you know, that's why we have different tees. It's like St. Andrews now. They have, I think, three or four tees on the old course that are on the other courses. They had to, like, move them across the fence to try and keep up with it all. But... I was there last year, and it's ridiculous. And it still played short. And so, you know, and it was a great event, but there's three or four par fours there that are basically long par threes. Because, uh, you know, you've also got to remember that the ball runs 40 or 50 yards on the ground. So, I don't know. To me, it seems like I, I don't know what the PGA Tour uh, are thinking. I don't know what the players are thinking, but I think that change is a, I've always, you know, part of the success of my career is that I've always embraced change. And I think change is a great thing and it creates interest, new challenges. The game will be at least as appealing, if not more appealing. And the point you made is a beautiful one, that you stand behind Deshambo, whether he's carrying a 330 or 300, you couldn't tell the difference. But, you know, if the average guy then is still carrying it 260, 270, 280, like it's still exciting to watch. It's still exciting to watch someone hit, you know, 13 or 14 fairways and play beautifully and shoot seven under. Um, you know, the game's not going to change and, you know, ultimately be better. And the, the skill of hitting a middle long iron, you know, versus the, you know, how many gap wedges do these guys hit nowadays? It's just, you know, it's like every hole. What do you, you got gap wedge, you know, and then you can play out of the rough. So you can't make rough. Oh, sorry. Let me correct myself. You either have to make rough so unplayable that it's a chip out sideways because normal rough, the guys will get it. They're so big and strong, they'll get a get wedge out. They'll yeah. get it near the front of the green. So it's not a penalty unless you turn it into a stupid penalty. So, you know, so I'd argue that it, it's reward. It's not rewarding the longer guys when we have these setups with people talk about, well, just narrow the fairways and make the rough unplayable. Well, that's creating an incredible disadvantage for the longer guys. Yeah. If the rough is truly unplayable. Even for the shorter guys too, because if they make the fairway so narrow, no one's going to hit them. So. No, well, you, you have nice rough up to about 270. <laughs> <laughs> make it super thick. I mean, they're the crazy thoughts. I mean, right. the fact that we would even suggest that is, yeah. you know. I've heard people say, you know, more rough, more trees. Well, that's not really how most of the courses or great courses uh, picture themselves. It's it, it, it's like Mickey playing Mickey Mouse golf. So uh, speaking of golf, how about, uh, you know, obviously you're in a big role there at Tour Edge and your season's not overly long up in Chicago to play golf, but do you get to play much or not? You'd think most people think I'm in the golf business. You get to play a lot of golf. <laughs> I hardly yeah. play any golf now that I'm a coach. Probably the same for you. No, it's the greatest misnomer. You get into the golf industry so you can. Um, look, I'm blessed, Brad, that I still get to play pretty regularly in the summertime uh, work-related golf. So, you know, I take a lot of my staff out to play. Um, you know, I try and get out once a week in the summer. I, I don't necessarily uh, succeed. I mean, weekends are tough for me because uh, wife and family and uh, I travel a lot with work as well, so I don't like to disappear on weekends, you know, for a half day to play golf. So, no, uh, 
bit of midweek work golf. I've never lost the passion, even though, you know, a lot of guys, when they get to a point where they realize they're not good enough to play for a living, kind of lose interest or lose the passion for it. Um, you know, that never happened to me. I'm as competitive today uh, <laughs> as I was. I hate playing badly. Uh, I still think that I should be able to, you know, pick up the clubs in, in April and play once a week and still be able to play off scratch. Uh, but we are optimists. But, no, nah, I love it. I absolutely love playing. I love everything about the sport. I love the camaraderie. I love being able to catch up with. We were lucky enough to have a game not so long back with one of our staff players. And, you know, life, you know, it doesn't get much better. And so we're blessed in what we do. And But, no, I still love playing. And I'm pleased to report that I've put a little bit of work in from some thoughts from you. And I am playing uh, a little bit better. There you go. I think I beat you by more than four shots that day, though, didn't I? Yeah, I think you had me. Uh, I think you had me by a lot. I'll quickly tell a story. So, you know, Brad is a great teacher, as everybody knows. But it's kind of one part of this teaching thing he hasn't quite grasped yet is that we went out and, and, and played with a Champions Tour player that Brad was working with. And Brad forgot that the Tour player is meant to shoot 65, not Brad. Um, you know, you do you do no good in corporate. You know the old Japanese. You've you've got to let the customer win, Brad. <laughs> but no, you still played beautifully and shot the uh, the easiest sixty five off the background Trump National in uh, Charlotte. So no, you've you've lost nothing. But you always were a flusher, and uh, I don't think many people, maybe even America, don't realise how good a ball striker you were. But you're also an underrated putter. You just I think you suffered from the malady of great ball strikers where when you hit so many greens, your proximity is just not going to be as good and your putting stats aren't going to be as good because, you know, you're not chipping for two-foot tap-ins all the time. So you're hitting a lot of 20-footers and, you know, you run the stats on 20-footers. And back then when you were playing, you know, the stats weren't as uh, drilled down as they are nowadays because you were a very solid short putter from like five foot and in. Yeah, I always tell people that. So I was a good, I was a very good two putter. I was a good putter inside six foot. And I, if I putted well from 10 to 20 foot, I'd feature in the tournament. But I, I just wasn't as good at 10 to 20 footers, whether it was a not so much a technique thing or a feel thing or I don't know. I just, but like I said, when we played, I have worked out a better way to putt. And uh, I putt pretty well all the time now. It's an interesting concept that I'm not going to tell here. In fact, it's the only concept that in my teaching I've never talked about or shown a video of because it's too good to give away for free. Uh, the, um, <laughs> I mean, putting also is an, not just a technique. It's, an, it, 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 it's the most, I think, artful of all of the skills required to play golf because, you know, green reading, you know, line and speed, are the perfect, you know, there's no perfect line for a putt, depending on what speed you want to hit. So the great putters invariably also were not just great technicians, but they were great green readers and they could picture putts and they could actually see lines that I think a lot of players just don't see those lines. Right. They just They don't see ridges and hills and four lines and picture the front of the hole being <clears throat> at, at four o'clock or sometimes even three o'clock is the front of the hole. Um, and by that, by looking at a clock, if, if six o'clock is, you know, on a dead straight part is the front of the hole. I mean, a lot of times the front of the hole is literally, you know, anywhere yeah, from, 
So, you know, the great part is, I mean, imagine if you'd had speed putting for you from 20 feet uh, <laughs> in, in your peak. I might be in, living in the Bahamas or Monte Carlo or somewhere. Yeah, or Cam Smith. I don't know whether you saw any of his lift off <laughs> yesterday, but Smith's putting performance was... Yeah, he's a freak at putting, isn't he? Uh, it's a beautiful motion. It's a beautiful, consistent... I'm sure you talk about these things a lot with your students, but his consistent setup, uh, he does it seemingly to, to a layman exactly the same way every time, no practice strokes, picks a line. He really works, I think, on his uh, visualising. I think he takes exactly the same approach to his looks and the places he looks, and then he fires. And, yeah, no, he's... He's really special with the blade. I mean, he's, I think he's Crenshaw like, you know, he really putts, you know, he's a gorgeous putter. And I don't use that word uh, loosely. He really is a gorgeous putter. I think the other thing with putting too is, you know, when, you, when you're playing golf, start lines and everything aren't quite as important because you have the ability to shape the ball. So you can actually shape the ball and spin the ball back to your target. You can't do that on putting. So obviously, there's a bit more due diligence. You got to really get the start line, then you got to get the speed, then you got to read it right, exactly like you said. Whereas playing golf, you can you can do a lot more. There's a bit more artistry to it. Not saying putting is not an art, but the, you have to be probably more precise. And think a great seven iron from 175 yards, you know, to five feet is a great shot. Pull it five feet for the ten feet is still a great shot, but that margin when you're putting is the difference between making right. ten a year and two million a year. You know, so there, there's no forgiveness on the putting green. Uh, you know, edges can be very unkind to golf careers. That's for sure. Going back to that, um, I think you know one of my prime examples. What you talked about, where you mentioned that I probably wasn't recognized as a good putter because I did hit a lot of greens. I, I always used to categorize Tom Lehman in that thing too. He was never considered a great putter, but he would strike the ball out of it where, like you said, you hit nine shots to 15 foot, 20 foot, which are good shots, but you just can't make all those. Whereas the guy misses a green, chips it up to a foot and they, they see his stats that he had 27 parts and they go, oh, he's a good putter. But there there is a some type of lie in there that about, what what makes it or what is a good putter and what isn't? No, absolutely. I mean, Mike Weir is a great example. I mean, Mike doesn't hit a lot of greens, um, or not as many greens as the other guys. Don't get me wrong, fantastic player, Masters champion, um, but he hits a lot of short holes, a lot of short putts because he is a beautiful chipper. Um, but you know, will generally be regarded as a pretty good putter. But you know, he, he's hitting a lot of three footers. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, it was awesome to catch up. We'll leave it to that. We might do it again another time when we come up with something else to talk about, but we covered a lot of subjects there and really appreciate you coming on. Hopefully, give Tour Edge a good plug. If people haven't checked them out, look them up. Where do you find the all your info, the Tour Edge stuff? So touredge.com or go to your local PGA Tour Superstore if you have one nearby. Uh, mate, fantastic to catch up. Lovely to be here. Uh, would love to chat any time. Nice to reminisce a little bit as well and love what you're doing with your teaching. And uh, I look forward to the new studio and uh, new developments in the, in the world of Hughes. So good luck with all that as well. 
Thanks, mate. It'll be awesome. Look forward to you coming and checking it out. Can't wait. All right, mate. Take care. Well, that's it for another episode of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. For more information about my golf instruction, check out my website, bradleyhughesgolf.com. If you like to watch golf videos to make you a better player, sign up for my members-only site, bradleyhughesgolf-members.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.